Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial and Michelle's co-host for this program. Now we're continuing to produce hundreds of programs a year at the Commonwealth Club online as well as many in-person programs. So head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for more upcoming programs as well as video and audio from past events. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube today, Add your questions to the chat box and we'll work some of them into our conversation today. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao. She is the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to all of you for joining us for this program. Here to talk about LGBTQ in Ukraine is journalist and Vice World News reporter Anya Zolajowski. Um, and we'll talk about the struggles that LGBTQ people face in Ukraine. Anya, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for your article and your research. I know that you were able to speak to three young LGBTQ people who share that, you know, they're doing things to, to live, to live through war-torn Ukraine right now. And one of those things is smuggling uh, HIV meds or gender-affirming medications to one another. Why don't we start with how you got connected to these young folks? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was on the ground in Warsaw, Poland, uh, reporting on, you know, the Ukraine war and actually, you know, the refugee crisis coming out of it. And so, you know, like with anything, when you're on the ground, you you meet a bunch of people. And it was really through word of mouth that I ended up learning about this group of uh, students who are doing this and two are based in Poland and one is in the Netherlands. They also have friends in Berlin who are helping them. And it really, I mean, it all started because there was a flea market um, that was run by stu university students that was in support of Ukraine. And one of the students comes up and is like, and the student is trans and comes up and is like, what if I donated my hormones? And, you know, that kind of planted a seed and really, really quickly, I mean, a matter of days, this team really rallied and decided to start collecting both HIV meds as well as hormones for trans people so that they could get those across the border because they realized for sure, you know, how, how are people getting these meds right now? And um, that's, that's how it started. And I, it was introduced to them through, through word of mouth. And so how are they actually getting it there? Because they have to, except for the ones in Poland, they have to get it through, you know, basically across Europe. I mean, is it, I, they're not, I presume, just sending it in the mail, if they, or, or are they in some cases? How is that happening? Yeah, and so it's it's important to also, you know, point out that a lot of the meds that are being donated or hormones that are being donated are from people who have HIV or who are trans themselves. And so they're taking their extra boxes and you know, either, you know, handing them over or sending them in some cases, absolutely, or driving them. And so then it's through these donations, these really, this informal way of accessing this, that they gather as many as possible and get them into Warsaw and then drive them down to the border and then across the border, the Poland and Ukraine border into Lviv, where they have a center that they work with to, to drop those off. 
What do you know about, you know, how the war has affected or impacted um, even, right, access to healthcare? I know that that, I think that is one of their strategy is to cripple the healthcare systems in Ukraine. Oh, yeah, hugely. You know, healthcare systems have been targeted. That makes it hard for everyone to get care, let alone, you know, trans folks who already have a harder time than the average person to get access to care. And also, if you look at, you know, heavily war-torn cities um, in, in Ukraine, access to pharmacies has largely dwindled. It's also hard for those pharmacies to get, you know, stable and regular shipments of medication. So ultimately, access to so much has been so drastically put into decline that a lot of trans folks in Ukraine or people who do have HIV are having a really, really hard time accessing these meds. And it's an interesting thing that came up, you know, in these interviews that I had with the students who are coordinating these shipments is what does it mean to have a life-saving medication? Because oftentimes we're thinking antibiotics, like we need to get these life-saving meds over the border into war zones so that people don't die from infection, for example. But here, you know, having access and safe access and immediate access to hormones or HIV meds, that is arguably also life-saving. And so that's why these students really rallied to be able to, you know, to the best of their ability, um, make up for this lack of access right now that is, that is caused by war and Russia's invasion. Since your story came out, have any other organizations or even governments or pharmaceutical companies stepped in to try to help with the effort? So I can't answer that 100%, you know, because I don't I don't know if I've missed something under my radar. What I can say is what makes this grassroots um, and sort of in, informal way of getting meds across the border so effective is that it, it is it is illegal, you know, like they they are essentially giving prescription medications to people whose names these prescriptions are under. And so for a really big NGO or aid organization, that's a really hard thing to do. And a really hard thing to do if you're talking about organization funding, you know, working well with other governments, et cetera. So these students, what, what they're doing is is illegal and, and it works so well because it's so informal and it'll be like for context, the Poland-Ukraine border, it just has so much traffic. So many Poles are crossing the border to deliver different kinds of aid all the time um, that could include helmets, um, bulletproof vests, some food, things like that. So it's a lot easier for you know, a few students to drive over and say they're coming over to help um, and then also have some of these meds in their in the trunk of their car than it would be for like the Red Cross to come in and be like, oh, we've got, you know, we've got HIV meds for everyone who needs them, even though we don't have everyone's names, you know. You'd mentioned, um, you know, uh, for example, one issue that LGBTQ people in Ukraine will face if they don't have access to these meds. And some of them are making the sacrifice, such as detransitioning. Can you, did they share with you, I mean, you know, those types of sacrifices that they must make and how the situation, ha how it's really created 
uh, uh, I guess, these unimaginable circumstances for themselves as LGBTQIA plus people. Oh, yeah, it is unimaginable. And I think it's unimaginable for for a lot of people. And that's a great question. I was talking to actually an activist in Ukraine who helps coordinate, you know, where these meds end up going across the country. And, you know, and, and this also came up with the students who are doing this. You know, if you have a few weeks to a month, you know, before you start to detransition, that is not a lot of time, especially when you don't know when the war is going to end and when Russia will stop invading. So we're talking about huge sacrifices that you have not even decided to make for yourself. And that can have all sorts of mental health implications that, again, go back to that life-saving question. What does it mean to be life-saving? Um, same thing with HIV meds. You know, these are life-saving meds that, you know, have allowed people who have tested positive for HIV to live totally normal lives and live very healthy lives. And we are basically saying like, you, you don't have the, the access to these medications right now. And you have this sort of time, like a very limited amount of time before you get them again to not feel the effects. And so these are, these are huge ramifications. I of, of course cannot speak for a trans person who's been you know forced into detransitioning in Ukraine. But, but it is important to point out that the ramifications are, are very severe and very serious, and we should be paying a lot of attention to them. Can I back up a bit and, and ask, what do we know about LGBTQ life in Ukraine before the war? I mean, what, what rights did they have? Was there a trend in one direction or the other? Um, what was it like for them? Yeah, so, you know, one thing that is interesting is... Um, Poland is at where a lot of people are fleeing, actually ranks lower than Ukraine in terms of LGBTQ rights. Um, so I, I do like to point that out because also, you know, right now is as people flee Ukraine often into Poland, most flee into Poland, um, or a place like Hungary, also not exactly known for, you know, human rights. When it comes to LGBTQ folks, it's important to remember, you know, people are fleeing for their lives because their physical safety from like a very acute war point of view is threatened. And so now they're going into countries, if, if they can, they're going into countries that have, you know, at times, you know, open hostility towards them. Um, so I do like to factor that in. Obviously, with um, trans identity, just like anywhere, there is there is threat. And I know in Ukraine, for example, um, and I'm not the most familiar with this, so I do, I'm not going to give too many details, but I know even like legally changing your gender in Ukraine comes with a whole lot of stigma. Um, oftentimes it's treated quite clinically, which is not, you know, which is not fair and can be quite traumatic. But now, because a lot of Ukrainians have you know, opted not to necessarily change their legal documents. Um, and a lot of trans Ukrainians have opted not to change, change their legal documents. Some have had a hard time escaping. That's especially true for trans women whose passports still have the male identifier on because obviously uh, young and middle-aged men are not allowed to leave the country uh, just because of the war. So 
these are the kinds of things that are happening. Do you ask the question of, I mean, I know that they're, you know, continuing to get as many of the HIV medications and the hormones and all the other medications that they need as much as possible. And it sounds like it's a very informal um, organizing of it, right? Like, like individuals are donating this. And at some point, I mean, I can't help but think that the supply will get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, did any of them talk about the three individuals that you chatted with? Did any of them talk about, you know, that fear of running out? What, what would they do? What are they going to do if there are plans for the short-term future? Or is it pretty much like we're living minute by minute? Yeah. So I, um, you know, there, there is a hopeful side to this. I want to stress before I get into, into the nitty gritty. Um, you know, I saw, they showed me, they basically have like an inventory um, and they keep it on a word document. And I actually, I saw like for the first five deliveries and it was getting actually higher and higher and higher because hundreds of people by the time I had reached out to them had already donated stuff. And now they have an Instagram page that is like their identities are anonymous on it, but it's an Instagram page where they say what they're looking for, donations are needed, needs to be in Warsaw at this time, or can pick up here at this time, um, need HIV meds or thyroid medication, stuff like that. Um, and so they've, they've managed to turn it into a pretty well-oiled machine. Of course, you know, the demand is enormous and we're talking about, you know, a handful of grassroots level people organizing these transports with, of course, the backing of hundreds of people who are donating, but still trying to get medication over to a population that's in the thousands. Um, so so it is it is for sure hard. And, and, you know, I spoke to the organizer in Ukraine who's helping coordinate, and obviously the situation's not great. A lot of people are not accessing the medications they need, but think about the people right now who are, because this is still ongoing they're still getting donations and they're still able to drive these meds you know I spoke to and, and it's getting bigger like I actually spoke to a friend you know two weeks ago who I wouldn't report on because uh, we're actually good friends but like he ended up driving a bunch of medication over the border too so uh, this really is expanding and it's like it's, especially in a place like Poland it's kind of like oh yeah my friend or my friend's friend is is delivering. Uh, these meds across. So that's the hopeful thing. That said, it's also really hard to track when it's so um, decentralized, just because um, so many people are just kind of ru rushing and going. But but the hopeful thing is that there are people who undoubtedly are getting some of the treatment that they need. Definitely not everyone, definitely not enough, but but there is there is movement and and it seems to be there is a commitment to it too. Talk a bit more, if you would, about on the Ukraine side, then, when, when the materials come in, how are they handled? How are people hearing about it? Um, and how are they, you know, I assume, is it, is, are, are they shipping it across country within Ukraine then? Or is it just for the folks who are there in Lviv? Lviv, Lviv yeah, um, absolutely. And I want to also stress for anyone who's watching, the reason I'm speaking very, um, like, broadly about people and not naming them goes back to that whole legality aspect. Um, I really, and also safety, you know, just knowing that hostility 
and you know open targeting of LGBTQ folks, coupled with the legality or lack thereof of delivering prescription medications over the border, I want to make sure that identities are protected. But basically, these meds go to a hub, an organization in Lviv that only has like five or seven people in staff total. But then they have scores of people who are helping just out of goodwill. You know, these are volunteers who aren't getting paid. And so there's a number of ways these meds get through. You know, they will get calls from Dnipro and other places or other cities in Ukraine, including those that have been heavily shelled. And the post office is still, or post offices are still running in Ukraine, at least in some parts. And, you know, people will also drive some deliveries. So it's a, it's a whole network. Again, it's kind of like, however we can get these meds to where they're needed, we will try that is sort of the mentality. But it is it is getting more and more dangerous. So that's also something, you know, to your question about are are we seeing fewer donations? I think actually the bigger thing to worry about is as the war wages on, as, you know, cities become even more destroyed, as healthcare infrastructure becomes even more destroyed, how much more difficult will it be to get these medications to places where they're needed? And people are going to need more and more help as the weeks and months go on. And so, and the center, while it's an LGBTQ support center, an advocacy group, they do support women. They do support differently abled folks. They don't turn down anyone who calls them. And, you know, they can get up to a thousand calls a day, the lead organizer told me. So the demand is real, you know, but they are doing what they can to take advantage of whatever method of transport that they can to, to deliver the meds. Have you had a chance to check in, follow up with the three young individuals that you reported on? Yeah, so I would say, especially through following the Instagram page, and I, I really should have sent you um, the link to that, but I can. I don't know if on this medium I can show you what that looks like, but I will definitely at the end of this send you a link so you can take a look. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it is ongoing. And like I said, my friend who delivered it, delivered meds two weeks ago. Um, it was the same thing. Um, a group, it was about two people, he and another, um, packed up their trunk with a bunch of stuff, including boxes full of donated medications and, and delivered them. And the last time I got an update was two weeks ago. And that was also when I spoke to the lead organizer in Ukraine. Uh, and I constantly see posts online on the Instagram page just saying, you know, we need this now and we need this now. Uh, the the head of the Russian Orthodox Church has said that pride parades were part of the justification for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, those are apparently the 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 uh, a big fear of, of the Putin circle. Uh, so Michelle, when you were organizing the San Francisco Pride Parade, you were uh, <laughs> a bulwark against Putinism. But on a serious level, then I'm I guess a has the Ukrainian Orthodox Church been any better? Do we know? I mean, this, I, th that wasn't what the article was about, but do we know if they've been any better? And kind of then in a separate branch, do we know anything about the Russian troops when they've been going into cities? Have they been targeting LGBTQ organizations or people? There was some fear about that, that it could happen um, before the, you know, as the invasion was getting underway. You know, I, I don't want to speak too, you know, I can't answer this in enough detail 
and I wasn't prepared for that. So I just don't want to say anything that hasn't been fact-checked. Um, I think we know that, you know, the Russian state is, has been openly hostile towards LGBTQ folks. And I know it's a really valid and strong fear of the LGBTQ community to see, you know, such a state invading your home, because obviously that comes with its own fears. And I think, you know, again, like macro level of war, we really have to think about how every conflict will disproportionately affect certain demographics. And here LGBTQ folks are no exception. Um, but in terms of like the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, I just, I can't, I can't speak to that, but super valid and important questions. Like we should be very much interrogating, you know, who is keeping LGBTQ people safe. And, you know, we know, we know for a fact that Russia hasn't. So. I saw that you wrote a, a second article on Ukraine and this time focused on folks who are choosing to, to actually go back home if they were out of the country. Tell us a little bit more about uh, that story. Yeah. And so there were, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of two, like at the start of the, um, at the start of the invasion at first, it was often like cis men who were really able-bodied, who were living abroad, going back so that they could join the fight. But then when, a few weeks ago, we noticed that there was a trend and I, I got confirmation from Przemysl, which is which is the border, it's a city on the border between Poland and Ukraine, that they were in fact noticing more people going back. Um, you know, I spoke to one Ukrainian woman who who has been in Warsaw and she was saying, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people are are going back, especially when things seemed a little bit more settled in Kyiv. They thought, okay, well, maybe now it's safe um, before Russia really started kind of changing the way they were um, pursuing their offensive. She also mentioned that people were really, were really missing home. And this actually came up in a lot of my interviews on the ground with refugees. Like, I, I really wasn't surprised to hear people were going back because, um, you know, I was sitting in the cafe interviewing two and they were both saying like, what, what is there for me here in Poland? And then their, their ho Polish hostess was like, well, what is there for you back in Ukraine right now? And they were like, but that's my home. You know, like, that's my language. That's my home. My husband is there. Um, they're safe in Poland and they're not going back for now. But I think the pull really like anyone anywhere in any conflict you know, not just in Ukraine, like no one wants to be displaced. And so here, a lot of folks are even just staying in Poland because it's right next door. The language and culture are more similar than they might be in, say, like Belgium or Italy or the UK or even Canada, where there's a huge Ukrainian diaspora. Um, and they're kind of waiting, hoping to go back as soon as possible. So you know, yeah, absolutely. There are there are people going back, even though it's still very dangerous because because again, it is their home, and no one wa no one wants to be displaced. And this is everywhere, not just in a European country. Do you hear uh, among the people you're talking with over there any thoughts or plans for how this will perhaps change anything that they were doing in their organizing or or anything like that after? this war is finally over? I mean, are, there, are people thinking that far ahead or is it dealing day to day right now with the what's going on? 
Yeah, I think a, a big part of it right now, and again, I can't I can't speak to everyone, of course. Um, and I will say my reporting tends to deal with, you know, the human side of things. So I also can't tell you what like NGOs and politicians are preparing for. But you know, when with speaking with refugees, people who've escaped, as well as you know LGBTQ folks um, on the ground in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine, I mean, I think the the big thing is just day to day. You know, like it's survival. It's also, if you did escape, like chances are you have grandparents or a dad or a brother, you know, still in Ukraine. So you're waiting to hear if they're okay. And so for sure, there are plans to like, as soon as it's better, I want to go back. Um, of course, thinking, well, what how also all the infrastructure that was destroyed, how will we rebuild that? But right now, it really is just that acute day to day safety, both emotional and physical. At least here in the United States, um, I can only speak for what I'm seeing and reading, but so many people ask, like, how do I help? How do I uh, do something about what's happening in Ukraine? Maybe you could help with that question, you know, especially those who think that, you know, anything other than sending money, like how else could we help folks in Ukraine? Oh, that's a good good question you know i think i mean i think keeping yourself informed first and foremost really matters um obviously if things are really triggering and you need a break from the news absolutely do that because we live in an era where we're so bombarded with hard things all the time that that's number one but like keep yourself informed i'm just gonna wait a minute is it is the internet connection okay i felt do you hear me okay yeah. Perfect. Perfect. It just paused for a sec. So yeah, keep yourself informed. You know, as a, as a journalist, I, I don't always know, like I wouldn't necessarily link out to and endorse a particular, you know, NGO or, or charity or group that said, you know, one thing that came up a lot when I was in Poland was a lot of North Americans were just like getting on a flight, going to Warsaw or Krakow or Przemysl, the border town or border city, and being like, we're here. What can we do? We want to help. And NGOs, volunteers, et cetera, they were like, why are you here? Like, you're actually making our lives more difficult because you are kind of coming in like a voyeur as opposed to like someone who's entrusting us to do this work when we're familiar with the context we're familiar with the language that's more similar or the language itself we know what's going on people are coming into our country so we know how to help here so actually they were saying like find the organizations you want to help and and do donate actually the money putting your money where your mouth is in this case is the biggest help so there are lgbtq groups all over poland who are helping and who are not only making sure like I spoke to Lambda Warszawa, which is in Warsaw. And one thing that they have been making sure that they can do is making sure that when they are put in touch with, you know, a lesbian couple who fled, for example, that those women can get to an LGBTQ home. So their hosts are either LGBTQ folks or like very vetted allies. So there is just you know, something like that, even when you're thinking about a refugee crisis, if if you fly from Canada or the US, you can't really do that. But 
but an organization on the ground, a hundred percent can. And they're also offering, you know, therapy in Ukrainian and Russian, because remember, there are a lot of Russian speakers in Ukraine as well. So they're making sure that there's therapy, but these therapists aren't, you know, working for free and they also need to get paid. So finding out like, oh, what causes you want to help doing just quick research, you know, you'll be able to tell if an organization is legitimate, look up what sorts of programs they're offering for refugees, um, look up their Facebook page, their Instagram page, their website, you know, all sorts of organizations. And then they, they have the expertise to be able to help um, this Instagram page with that tells you where to send, you know, hormones and HIV meds. Like these are the things that, you know, we can do. And I understand the feeling of helplessness. You know, you're sitting across the world, you're seeing this unfold and you're thinking, oh, yet another conflict. And I, you know, I'm on my couch and I don't know what to do. I get that that can be, um, that can feel very hopeless, but there are so many ways that you can just, you know, reach out to the right people and ask how you can help without inserting yourself. And that's often the most effective. That's definitely what I heard from different volunteers and groups on the ground who are helping. Um, we've talked a lot about, obviously, uh, medical uh, help, physical, you know, uh, treatments and such. Um, and you, you kind of just touched on the, my next question, which is really then about mental health. You talked about some therapy that is being offered or, or there are some options. Could you talk a bit more about that? And is that for, for refugees? Is, is there anything being done uh, for people still in Ukraine? Yeah. Oh, still in Ukraine. That's also, that's a tough question too. So I guess I'll answer in two parts. Um, you know, when I was, I interviewed a, a psychologist who is in Poland, um, in Warsaw, and he is, he speaks in Polish and in Russian. And so he was able to help. I was at a volunteer center where I interviewed him and he was saying, you know, you like I had, I was in Poland you know, kind of right at that time when the first wave of acute stress can start turning into PTSD or PTSI. I know some people prefer PTSI. And so we really started talking about how only at that point had he really started noticing symptoms of PTSD, including in kids. Um, there were, I, I met a mom right when, as I was interviewing him, because this was out of volunteer center, I met a mom who was saying that once she and her kids were safe in Poland, they were visiting some friends in the city of Wrocław and they were near the airport and a, a plane was flying overhead and her young daughter thought it was the Russians. You know, that's a symptom of PTSD, the psychologist said. Um, he had also spoken to a young boy who heard in Warsaw um, sirens, just like an ambulance driving by. And he thought that was an air raid siren and he asked if they needed to get shelter. Like these are... These are the things that we're already seeing in, in Poland. Um, and so these are also the things that psychologists are, are getting ready to do, like, or are doing, they are doing, you know, there are centers, people can go and then they're connected with, with therapists, with psychologists, psychiatrists who can help them. And that really important piece is the language piece because, you know, in a journalistic interview, a translator works really well. But in, in, a, in therapy, if you have to translate everything, it's a lot harder to express yourself. And so a lot of these psychologists are working really hard 
and they're expecting rates of PTSD to start like shooting up now that we're kind of past those first four to six weeks when your body is just in acute stress, like let's go. Um, and as more and more people cross in too, and they over time start settling and all of a sudden the PTSD or PTSI starts settling, that's just going to make the numbers worse. In terms of, you know, Ukraine, and again, I can't, I can't speak to this nationwide, especially since I was based in Poland. The, the main concern here is, like, if you're in an active war zone, your priority is going to be a little different. So the same psychologist talked about this. Like, when you're trying to flee, when you're either, you know, fighting or flighting, you're not thinking, well, I need to call a therapist. Like, usually it's after that acute stress subsides and you have that moment um, away from the threat that all of a sudden the the trauma and the post-stress depression irritation etc all of those symptoms start to hit so you know I think your question is really important because it also speaks to how proactive we all could be or organizations and um, politicians could be in recognizing that eventually there's going to be a lot that Ukrainians still in Ukraine are going to be dealing with and how can we ensure that they have they have access to that? Because hopefully, you know, that fight and flight will eventually, that need to, will eventually end, you know, very hopefully. For those of us who are covering Ukraine and what's happening in Ukraine and specific conversations around, um, you know, like LGBTQIA plus people or marginalized groups, a, a big question that comes back is con- wanting to continue the work, but also you wonder, like, how is this all going to end? When is it, you know, going to end? I don't know what it's like for you, Anya, but, you know, for example, for myself, and I have spoken to a few at least pride organizers in Ukraine, in Kiev, um, who are now basically fighting. They're in the trenches fighting. They're fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their peers. Um I would love to hear your thoughts if, you know, that question runs through your mind as well. Like, what's it going to take for this to end so that we could live in peace? Oh, I know that, that's a that's a big question. And I know it's it's so, you know, I think for so many of us, it's just um, unfathomable, you know, and and you think like these organizers who have spent, in some cases, decades fighting for justice so people can live safely and live to their fullest, live their fullest selves safely. Um, What do we lose when we lose an organizer like that? Because they were in the trenches. You know, I think the human cost is just unimaginable. We're obviously losing family, or not we, but generally like the royal we, but people in Ukraine are losing family members. But then in this case, LGBTQ communities are losing leaders with so much knowledge and just decades of knowledge to be able to fight for human rights. So I'm, you know, I have Polish citizenship. I am, I am Polish um, and and Armenian, but in this case, you know, this is where it's being Polish that, you know, so I'm Polish. I, I am so intimately familiar as are, you know, all Polish families with, you know, Russian imperialism. And and again, I also want to stress, um, this is not like in no way, shape or form, 
uh, if I say Russian imperialism, that's not directed at all Russians. That is, you know, at the state. I think that I've noticed a lot of anti-Russian sentiment, especially in Poland, that has been quite violent. And I just, I want to make sure that anything I say is separate from that, just because um, that's very complicated and there's a lot of nuance there. And I don't want to add fuel to that fire. But, you know, when you watch, I think, I don't know what it'll take to end because when you come from a country that has has such an intimate, you know, history and understanding of of Russian imperialism, or, or, or I should say of imperialism, but in this case, Russian imperialism, Poles are just, you know, scared that they're next. Um, in Ukraine, obviously, they are, they, they have surprised the world in the best way um, by fighting with, at times, too little support. Um, and I think it's, it's really hard to say, it's really hard to say what will, what will end this. I don't, I don't know, you know, this is, I just, I just know a lot of people are both hopeful and scared, you know, either people like, and, and just based on what I talked to or spoke to people in Poland about both Ukrainians and, and Poles, you know, Ukrainians want it over, obviously they want to go home. They want to be reunited with their families and their relatives. Um, Poles are helping as much as they are because they understand how bad it is and how much worse it could be. And I think, you know, I don't think anyone really has an answer um, for when and how this could end. I think we can just really keep paying attention and hope that it ends as soon as possible. And also keep paying attention after it does end because when it ends, it's not like everything's gonna be great. There's gonna be a lot of grief to deal with. There's gonna be a lot of rebuilding to deal with like as we're talking about the healthcare systems, infrastructure, you know, cities need to be rebuilt. So all of that, you know, and, and those are moments when we, sh we shouldn't be peeling our gaze away either. Um, I, I know that's not the most satisfying answer, um, but that's the only answer I, I can give. Yeah, I don't think any of us ha have a satisfying answer. And so at least sharing, I think, um, is part of the mental health part, the part of the therapy part in world. We, at least, you know, we care and we, we know that we, we have to do something, something has to change and hopefully that's coming soon. Back to you, John. Well, and this might be a question that both of you can maybe chime in on. And that is, you know, it's, it's amazing. These students saying, this is a problem. I'm going to do something. I'm going to put myself in danger legal and or actual physical danger and, and uh, try to get these medicines in there. Um, are LGBT rights groups and, and pride organizations and such elsewhere directly doing anything as well? You know, maybe other efforts to help LGBT, excuse me, LGBTQ folks in uh, Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, Lambda Warsaw or Lambda Warsaw um, is a huge organization and they've been working around the clock to support uh, Ukrainian refugees. And again, everything from uh, translators to vetting people who want to host them to offering therapy or making sure they can connect people to therapy. And there are groups like that, you know, all over Poland too. In Krakow, I know that there is 
there are um, groups as well. Obviously, um, I've, you know, I've even had, I'm based in Canada. So I've had a group in Toronto reach out and say that they've also been, you know, on guard waiting for LGBTQ Ukrainians to come so they can support them as well. So, you know, I'm seeing a very international effort to support. I'd love to hear also what Michelle has seen. Um, but but yeah, I, it's it's a huge effort. And I think whether it's, you know, especially even I know finding med like a doctor for these folks in Poland has been a big one once they do get in. So all sorts of all sorts of supports, especially for that immediate care and then making sure that there's that line of communication open so that they continue to get care while they're in a new country, you know, and they're still in Poland. So that's that's been really cool to to learn about and to see. Yeah, just to add a little bit to Anya's um, uh, response, I, I think for me, the hope is in the fact that, you know, time and time again, the LGBTQIA plus community comes together during some of the most toughest and challenging times. And now we have much more of a global network than we've ever had in our movement, you know? And so I've heard from, right, like a lot of the pride organizers in the vicinity of Ukraine are networking and organizing around helping with refugees, like Anya had mentioned, also the mental health aspect, the language, you know, situation and getting some of the care in that way. Um, and then the obvious, right, donations, donations from around the world and uh, as not just like the Western countries, but, you know, countries from from everywhere that I've heard organizers come together, you know, countries in Asia who are thinking of those in Ukraine, specifically here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, you've got our biggest leaders, our, our, our most entertaining drag queens, our elected officials you know, who've come together to do even small time you know, fundraisers. Um, and then again, the, the pride organizers who are tapping into a global network to say, you know, we're, we're not going to let the LGBTQIA plus community, we're not going to let women, we're not going to let vulnerable people, we're not going to let children down. Um, but I would have to say that I think the two most important priorities uh, is to create a network where people can flee and escape if that's what they want to do. And then, you know, folks who who need things like medication, who, who need you know, health care. Uh, so I think just to you know, wrap up the conversation about Ukraine and LGBTQIA plus is we have a beautiful you know, community. We have a very caring community. And uh, I hope those who aren't on the side of humanity are scared because a, a lot of those resources coming together would mean that, you know, you'll lose you will lose. Like that is my ultimate belief. Um, Anya, I mean, thank you so much again for the coverage. And I know that you'll continue your coverage. I want to turn our attention and spend the last 15 minutes of our program here talking about your work in general. I know that you cover more than Ukraine and the LGBTQIA plus community. What else are you working on? Um, yeah, you know, a lot of news this year, um, a lot of news. It's always relentless. Um, obviously, we saw the Roe v. Wade leak uh, earlier this week. And I, you know, I want to shout out a lot of my colleagues um, who, you know, Carter Sherman in particular has been on the abortion rights beat um, in at Vice for like, or yeah, she's been on the beat for over six years. And 
it was really all hands on deck um, this week on Tuesday. So I was helping with that and wrote about how, you know, people of color and black people in particular are are going to be most likely targeted and surveilled a lot more. You know, the more we see an attack on abortion rights. I'm also currently covering the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, um, and which is quite notorious for for many reasons. And I I often also just do a lot on indigenous affairs, climate, um, trans rights, anything social justice related. I I really care about and. Oftentimes, my my editor and I just talk like, what is the biggest news story? There's always going to be a way that that big news story has several social justice implications, and we need to we need to really dial into that. So that's, I would say, a good rundown of what I do. Basically, ever a little bit of everything. Well, actually, right along those same lines, um, what is your are you optimistic that things are going well as far as addressing social justice problems? Or is it, you know, there, oftentimes you get a lot of na national, even international attention on something, racial justice, indigenous rights or something, but it wanes and, and nothing ultimately results. So what do, you, what do you think is, I won't say what do you think will happen unless you want to predict, but I mean, are you optimistic that there is a, a either a generational change or an attitudinal change um, that could be reflected in policies and, and uh, actual rights and, and, and uh, lived experiences. Yeah, I think I think cautious optimism is the best term to use. Um, you know, I think it's really easy. There there can be a lot of a lot of bad news, like we see in the U.S. the assault on trans rights, the assault on abortion. Um, you know. I think a lot of people too, very rightly feel like we had, you know, all of the BLM marches in 2020 and how much change has that affected. But I, I do have hope. And I think a lot of people have hope. I think Michelle also spoke to how now we're seeing this global network among LGBTQ communities and organizations. I get my hope, you know, by by doing this work, I mean, even I, I know, like with the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial, it's really, it, it is a hard trial to cover. There are a lot of emotions online um, that aren't always filled with nuance and they can be quite, you know, quite vile, you know, with the, with the threats and with the language used. And so I had written a story just being like, the, the, the headline was, something along the lines of why does it seem like the whole internet is pro Johnny Depp? The point of the story was not to pick a side. I do not, I'm a journalist, I'm not a judge or a jury. But the point was to look at the vitriol that is specifically targeting one party and that's Amber Heard and the way that it is, you know, it's people wishing her dead, you know, calling her words I won't use on air with you. And I got an email from um like a guy who was just like you know what before I read your article I was really pro depth and then I read this and I'm actually pretty neutral and I'm thinking about why these comments are the way they are and that's where I get hope you know do I have a bunch of other emails that are calling me the same words that they're calling heard absolutely but like those are those the loudest people tend to be the people who are the angriest and when you get like a bunch of nice messages too 
that are kind of just showing that people are thinking like that is that is the best or you I'm sure you've both you know gone into a community and they're just grateful to have a platform and that that's everything you know and we're so you know it's so hard to have a job in journalism I realize there's a lot of privilege in that so um I'm I'm just I of course there's hope I don't think I think if there wasn't hope like you I don't think progress is always a straight line it kind of goes like this but ultimately we are here because of so many leaders before us and I think like looking at what's been accomplished in the past and knowing we can keep accomplishing it and even if things go back a bit we can keep shining a light on justice that's what matters so yes I feel I feel a lot of hope and I get a lot of hope out of those like little conversations, those little light bulb switches that people may have, that I have, you know, that we all have. And, and I mean, look at the coverage after the Roe v. Wade leak. I mean, that in and of itself is really hopeful, not just advice, but all across platforms, even, you know, this podcast and how the voices you all raise and bring up. So of course, of course, there's hope. Um, the students delivering meds across the border to Ukraine, that's hope. I mean, so not to sound at all patronizing, but I think Gen Zers are so smart. <laughs> like so many of them are just so smart and think about things like in ways that so many of us didn't growing up. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very hopeful about the work we can do. And I'm very hopeful about the next generation and how we'll continue to learn from them and learn from those who came before us. That was actually a question that I forgot to ask, which was, you know, why um, it was even mentioned that they were Gen Zers that, and now you've, you've answered it, actually. I'm with you. I think our future generation are brilliant and they, they do think differently and are growing up in a different way. On that note, I also feel like, you know, all of us having exposed to something like social media and how the internet has changed our lives, how it's changed how we get news, how we get real news. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, it's, it does feel like people are a little bit more cautious, especially learning how Facebook had, in my opinion, at least damaged even something like the most recent election somehow, right? So much misinformation, disinformation that um, is available on social media. Uh, do you feel like people are waking up to that and uh, are realizing it have, have you changed the way you use social media as a journalist oh gosh yeah I mean I I hope so obviously I think social media is so hard because there there's the good side where you're connected to so many people but then there's the bad side where it's filled it can be filled with misinformation disinformation and obviously we know that you can get caught up in your echo chamber you know you read one article with a slight far right bent and all of a sudden you have a bunch of you know so that I, that's a bit of a overgeneralization but more or less how it works um as a journalist you know we are all quite public facing um i really try to keep a firm boundary between what is my um like what is my private account and what is my public account Twitter, I really only use to engage with the work of other journalists or share mine or to reach out to sources. Um, so very, and I, I, I stay a little bit 
you know, farther away from it now than maybe I used to, because I think social media is also where a lot of the hate comes. Um, but that's just a personal boundary. I think where a lot of, a lot of, I, I obviously don't want to speak in broad strokes or, or oh, sorry. I, yeah. I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think a lot of journalists were, we are lucky because we have been trained in media literacy. I would hope most of us have been, if not all, because, you know, we have certain standards and practices we have to uphold to make sure the information we share is credible, correct, um, and, and transparent. You know, we spoke to this person because um, I don't totally believe in, you know, 100% objectivity, because I don't think that's really possible. Like, I can try my best to hold that as an ideal. But more about balance for me and doing the best that I can to be fair. And so we have these really strong ethics. I think social media has just made it so much more difficult for people to grasp media literacy. And that's not something that's necess- that's taught, you know, in K through 12. And so that's been a big challenge. Um, but also, you know, I don't, this isn't my area of expertise, so I don't want to be too fatalistic, but I also don't want to be too optimistic because I don't study this. So um, I know I've definitely altered how I like interact with social media. I think it can be a great tool, um, but I usually yeah get my news from other journalists that I trust, you know, news sites that I trust. Um, and I try to share that with people who maybe don't have the same kind of profession we have if, if we do have a conversation you know, I'll talk to them about how to tell if a new sort or a new site is, is reputable and stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I hope we're turning a bit of a tide because it would be, it would be a big, a big shame if everyone just got their news from Facebook all the time. So how did you get into this business? It's a, I mean, I'm, I'm the son of newspaper editors and, and political cartoonists. So I kind of grew up around it, but what was your background and why Why and how did you get into it? Oh, you know, I didn't, I wasn't the type of person to always think like, oh, I'll be a journalist. I, um, and funny, like I, my, my um, late aunt, who was one of my favorite people ever was a journalist in Poland. And I was always like, I don't want a life, like so cool, but not for me. And then I guess sometimes like blood just runs thicker than water. And in this case, genes were really strong and I was finishing up my poli-sci uh, undergrad and was studying for the LSAT and was like, you know, law seems so boring. And I say that really appreciating all the lawyers who have spoken to me and my friends who are lawyers, but I just on a whim looked up the master's program I did and they were allowing um, late late applications. And a ma- month later I got approved. I was like, I'm doing it. And I just, I fell in love with it. Um, I loved my program and you know at first was like maybe this will just give me transferable skills but again the more I did it the more I loved it and I just I I stayed and I graduated four years ago and and now I'm still in it and I really I don't I don't think I'll you know obviously knock on wood you never know what circumstances would happen but I hope I can do this for a really long time I don't know if you'll want to share and you feel free to say like, Michelle, I'm just not going to answer that question. But if there was one media organization or a company out there that you would not tune into or read news from, <laughs> what would it be? 
Oh gosh, that's a <laughs> that's a that's a good question. That's a risky question because I feel like if the wrong people hear it, um, uh... <laughs> yeah, feel free to say pass. But but where I'm getting at is, um, you know, again, putting it out there. Yeah, yes, you should be reading some stuff, and then some stuff you really shouldn't even believe it. Hundred percent. You know, I think, and what's scary is a lot of these sort of a lot of these news sites I wouldn't read that people shouldn't read because it's not, it's not real journalism or it's misinformation and disinformation. They look so much like news sites. Um, but I would look up, you know, very often news sites will have like their standards and practices um, available. I would also look up um, who the editors are, who the journalists are, um, you know, read the articles. If, like, usually if something is very, 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 very ideological, I would avoid it because it is a key practice to make sure that all parties that are implicated in an article need to be reached out to and their perspective needs to be included. So that is also a good rule of thumb. Um, I don't I don't want to get trolled by by anyone, but that is how I would put it is. You know, there can be a healthy range within which reputable news sites will fall um, from, you know, progressive to centrist and or like, you know, to more conservative. But ultimately, there's a healthy range. And if you go outside of that range, it is it is bad. Just don't I wouldn't read it. Great advice. Last question for you. And this really you know goes back to. Sorry. <laughs> I was just making sure that there wasn't something weird happening right outside my window. I know you heard there's a car being dragged. Um, the last question for you is goes back to the, you know, the narrative, the tone of some of your articles. And then, and even especially about the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard uh, cases and how, why, like we have these, you know, responses or reactions where it's one or the other. For example, you're either, you know, anti-racist or white supremacist. You're, you're pro-Black Lives Matter or you're Blue Lives Matter or, or something like that. Um, and I feel like that's been kind of how people have absorbed the issues that we have faced recently. So if you could say something about, you know, opening your mind more when you're reading about social justice, that that could really help us more than it could create the chaos and the confusion and the divisiveness that has existed recently. Yeah. Let me think about that for a bit. So, cause I know some of my answers have been long winded and I don't want to keep putting you through that, but um, <laughs> let's think. So, you know, I don't, I, I find it a little bit, um, how do I, again, I want to put, make sure I word this carefully. I don't think that human rights and social justice should be exclusively put on the left. And I, I think I would encourage people to open their minds up when they're thinking about freedom, when they're thinking about liberty, these words that are often thrown, thrown around. My question is, okay, if you're fighting for it, who are you fighting for? For whom? And 
it can be very, I think, disheartening to feel like whether you're for trans rights or not becomes so rooted in whether you identify as a progressive or conservative, left or right, when, you know, very often freedom is thrown, is, is a word that like is on, that everyone can kind of speak to at different points. And so I would encourage people to think about who they're fighting for or who they're writing about and whose justice they're pursuing. And if you're not including trans folks, black women, non-binary folks, women, all pregnant people, people of color, you know, differently abled folks, my question is why? And why not, you know, like ultimately there, there is so much information out there where you can learn about these perspectives. Like there are so many organizations that have resources. There are so many books that have both fiction and nonfiction that can expose you to what freedom and justice or the lack of it does to a person and to a group and use that to inform what you're like, where you're going with your politics, because I just, I don't, I don't think social justice should be so politicized. I think it should just be a fact. Like it just is something we're pursuing. Um, so that's what I would say is, you know, just think about who you're fighting for and why. I got chills. That was a beautiful answer and I'm going to borrow it and use it. Please, please. I'm, I'm sure I borrowed it from someone else too. I don't think, um, I'm sure, I'm sure that I've borrowed that from someone else. Uh, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Um, yeah. So my, you know, I said, I don't use Twitter so much, but I do use it for this. Like my Twitter has my email as well. So my Twitter is, um, A N Y A Z O L E D Z. Um, so that should be easy. And then my emails there, also, if you look up my name and vice, you'll find my con like contributor page. So that has my work and it also has my email. Anya, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you for your journalism and all the work that you do. Thank you both. And for all of that too, for, for this podcast, for the work you do, for the organizing, all of it. Thank you. And thanks for having me on. Support the work of our speaker today, journalist Anya Zolajowski. Back to you, John. I'll add my thanks as well to Anya. And thank you to all of you watching and listening online to this program. A reminder, you can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good weekend. Bye. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you.